Would you turn to Psalm 68? My goal in approaching these psalms was not to get into the details of them or spend vast amount of time on each verse, but rather to cover the whole psalm. That's easy to do when it's only seven verses, but when it's 35 verses, sometimes you have to pick and choose of what's going to be there and what's not going to be there. And so tonight, uh, we're going to do a flyover on this psalm, but, but hopefully we'll be able to get the, an understanding of it and also have an application of it. Uh, Bob Godfrey, in his uh, book, Learning to Love the Psalms, says this is probably the most exultant and joyful of the Psalms. It's the procession of God into his holy temple after a victorious battle. And there's many themes that emerge from this, this psalm. It's likely that many think that the, the background of it is one of David's victories. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, he defeated Hadazer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobaz. He went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. Now, this is just a short section with very little detail that, that speaks of David's victory. And so, while it's a short statement, it's actually an important point in Israel's history because it solidified David's power as king of Israel. And so this is his response to that solidification of his power as king. And again, just a short statement that he defeats this king and he wins the battle. And there's a lot of plunder in it that he's able to take and other kings now are before him. Um, just short statements, not a lot of detail in Second Samuel. But nonetheless, it was a very significant point and maybe the high point in David's um, kingship. Now, as he writes this psalm, something he does is he looks back on what God did in the Exodus and in the conquest of Israel, of the land of Israel, and then applies what God had done in the conquest and in the Exodus and applies that to his current situation. But we can't stop there, because we know that the, the, the Psalms are ultimately about our, our greater King, the Lord Jesus. And so, as it looks back on what God did in the Exodus, and then what God did in the conquest of the land, and David applies that to his time, we then see that it is applied in a much greater way to the reign of Christ even now, and our expectation of his return. It's amazing the amount of eschatology that comes from the Psalms. And we certainly see eschatological statements from this. And so let me read the Word of God. In Psalm 68, it's a psalm of David, a song to be sung. Verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. 
Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain. Before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. The Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee. They flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold, when the Almighty scatters kings there. Let snow fall on Zalman. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousand upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, playing them virgins playing tambourines. Bless God and the great congregation, the Lord, O you who are Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God. Sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And may God bless the reading of his word. Just in reading that, did you notice the poetic language? 
In fact, the, the poetic language of this psalm makes it in, very, in many spots difficult to understand and to, to interpret. And so there's various interpretations of several po- uh, points of this psalm. But it begins with the rising of God, and, and most commentators point out this is pointing us back to the Exodus. This is pointing us back to the wilderness wanderings where the ark of the Lord rises. We see in Numbers, in chapter 35, 10, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 35, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And so that language that Moses uses of the ark being picked up and moving and transported is the very language of God himself arising. And what would happen when by faith the ark was in battle with the people of God? The enemies of God would scatter. They would flee before the ark. They would flee before God. Now, what you see here in verses 1 through 2 is what the enemies of God will do before God. And then in verse 3, you see how the righteous respond when they're before God. Now, it's stated very clearly that the enemies of God that seem so powerful, that seem so strong, they're described as wax that melts before fire, which actually is a picture of their, of rather their weakness before a holy God. We who see enemies as being so almighty and powerful and we being so weak, we actually see before God they are nothing more than wax before the fire. And for Israel is looking back as David's looking back on Egypt before this ragtag group of Israelites trying to escape against the most mighty army that the world has known at that point. The enemy is described as being nothing more than wax. Nothing more than just weakness before God. Now here's the thing that we have to know is that as we live in this time now, there are many enemies that are gathered against the church that seem powerful, that seem strong. What will they be like in the day before the Lord? All of that strength All of that power will be nothing more than wax before a fire. And you know, the thing is, is that whenever Scripture is describing something, it's using language that we can understand. Whatever the picture is, it's much worse in reality. Because we just can't comprehend infinite power of God. We can understand our finite weakness... And so the best that we can do is that when we see the wicked, simply as it states, the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous, on the other hand, 
In verse 3, notice what it says. Before God, they shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be with jubilant joy. That is that they will be joyfully joyful. The righteous have no fear of being before the Lord. Now we have a fear of the Lord that is our reverence of the Lord and a, a recognition of His holiness, but we anticipate and we pray for the Lord to return, right? And so we have an anticipation of that because we have been declared righteous before the Lord. We in heaven, uh, in heaven's courtroom, we have been declared not guilty. So we do not have a fear of God of being like the wax before a fire. We don't worry about perishing. Our sin perished upon the cross. And so as a result of this, there's a contrast here between the wicked and the righteous before God. The righteous that is meek, the righteous that is oftentimes in the world seen as being even weak and something easily taken advantage of, what you see is that at the coming of the king, it is the righteous that shall rejoice versus the wicked that seemed almighty will actually perish. And in contemplation of this, the psalmist calls the congregation to reflect upon this. And through this reflection, it leads us to sing. Verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to His name. We're called to respond in what God will do with singing. It's an interesting phrase there, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. Again, this is that poetic language of this psalm, and this psalm is really rich in the poetic language, which makes it difficult to understand what exactly, who's the writer? Well, it's God is the writer through the deserts, but why that language? Well, you think of God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, leading his children through the wilderness. So again, David's looking back on what God did in the Exodus, what God has done in the conquest, what God has done in the wilderness. He's looking at his own victory that he just experienced, and he's applying what God did then to what's taking place right now in this moment. I think that that's the key point of this whole entire psalm that we have to walk away with is that application of the power of God in the generation with Moses is applied to David during his time. And he keeps on bringing this out. He describes God as father of the fatherless and protector of widows. He settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. God cares for the helpless. God cares for the widow. He says that true religion is caring for the orphan and the widow, is it not? God desires justice from his people. God will himself bring justice. God himself will watch over the people. But notice what it says, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. As Israel escapes Egypt and the land is laid desolate. You know, what's interesting is that when you think about 
the Red Sea. After the Red Sea is over, we don't see much about Egypt. We don't think much about what happened. Well, whoever survived had to go back to a land that had been destroyed by the plagues. It's amazing that, that, that God is stating about the rebellious here that he's the one who actually gave them all that they had, but they're the rebellious. And so they returned to a parched land. The Lord had given everything to Egypt, yet they had rebelled. And so when they returned, they returned to nothing. They returned to nothing. How great of a tragedy it would have been for the Egyptians after the plagues, after the decimation of their army, to return to a land that could not bear fruit because it had been destroyed. It was utterly decimated. What a contrast. God cares for the weak, but the rebellious, he leaves in desolation. We see a direct address to God in verses 7 through 10. Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earthquake, the heavens poured down rain, before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, rain in abundance, O God, you shed abroad. Yet you restored your inheritance as it languished. The picture here is that of Sinai. And in Exodus, in chapter 19, just to get a glimpse of what took place at Sinai, there's a direct reference to Sinai in Psalm 68. But just to get an idea of the astrological features of it, the rain and all of that, in Exodus chapter 19, in verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, that a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. So, quite a sight. It would have been a fearful sight. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through the Lord, to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish. Again, a very frightful scene. Verse 23, And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So you can picture that it is set apart. Sinai is set apart. It's blocked off to prevent the people from going to it. But then at the same time, I mean, if that doesn't add a little bit of pause, you think of a crime scene, not to say that Sinai was a crime scene, but you just think of how that affects you when you see a crime scene that's roped off. You know something serious is taking place there. I'm not supposed to cross this line. Otherwise, there could be a consequence for that or a a no trespassing sign. Trespassers will be shot on sight. You think of that. That makes you pause before you jump the fence. And so that's around Sinai. But not only that, is it's accompanied with the, these, the, the rain and the darkness and lightning and thunder. It would have been a frightening scene, one of which I don't think that we could understand. Maybe if we lived in the Midwest and we experienced some of the weather that they experience. 
of darkness and tornadoes and all of the, 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 the horrific weather that comes with it. That, that's what we should be visualizing taking place there at Sinai because that's how the Scripture describes it. And so that is exactly what the psalmist is showing is this, but it shows it in a restorative manner. That what's taking place there is a means of restoration for God's people. In fact, it says your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. What took place on Sinai led to them conquest to the conquest of the land. Verse 11 says, The Lord gives word, the women who announce the news are a great host. This is again going back to the Exodus and the Song of Miriam. In the Song of Miriam, we read these words in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20 and 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. David's looking back on that moment where God brought about the greatest victory in Israel's history, and he's recounting that and putting it in the present of his own experience. What an amazing book we have that God has given us. How he connects these pieces for us. It says that the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee. And most, most commentators point out this is probably referencing Joshua chapter 10. In verse 16, where we read, the king, These five kings fled and hid themselves in the caves at Makedah. So he's looking back on the conquest of the land. He's looking back on the exodus. Going on in verse 12, The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie in the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman. What is the exact poetic meaning of that? I don't know, but if you find out, please tell me. Uh, the snow on Zalman, one commentator goes as far as saying that is the corpses of the dead bodies that are littered upon the mountains in their defeat. It's definitely this picture that God has conquered, that God is, has, has, uh, is victorious, and God's people are celebrating in His victory. But what exactly does all of that mean? It's hard to say. It goes on in verses 15 and 16 to a, an interesting verse that's together. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred or why do you look with jealousy, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will live forever. This is taking the many peaks of Bashan, which would have been a much more majestic and grand mountain range. And Mount Zion 
is speaking, saying, why are you jealous that God has chosen me? That's, that's the meaning of it, is that it's, it's, there's a question of M- M- Mount Bashan's jealousy over Mount Zion. So if you were to compare Mount Zion, it was relatively small. Mount Bashan, many peaked, would have been more impressive. And so personification with nature is taking place there. Why are you jealous of me? It's interesting. I did write this note down because it reminds me of David. David was the least impressive. But that's where God chose to go, is with David. God does not look on the outward, but he looks on that which he has sanctified. He looks on that which he has set apart and says, this is mine. You know, we say he looks upon the heart, but before we can say he looks upon the heart, we have to say he looks upon that which he has set apart because the heart is wicked above all things. Why did he choose David? Well, because he had set David apart and given David a new heart. Why did he choose Mount Zion over Mount Bashan? Because that's where God chose to sanctify his name among the people. It reminds us of the message we carry, is that the foolish shall shame the wise. God oftentimes takes Mount Zion's and uses it for His glory in remarkable ways, where even history centers on that little mount. But yet it was not glorious like Mount Bashan. Isn't that amazing what God does with those things that he sanctifies and what God does with us, those whom he has set his love upon, that we are righteous in his sight? If he can take a little mount like Zion and make that the pinnacle of his presence in the midst of a people, what is it that he does with us when he chooses us and decides to reside in us? What an amazing thought. Verse 17, it returns to the power of God. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. The picture here is God's un- unstoppable force, God's power that is above all things. It does bring to mind Ezekiel in chapter 1, but also it brings to mind Daniel in chapter 7, in verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wills a burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came from before him, a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Speaking of God's unlimited power. But I want you to notice this phrase at the end of verse 17. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. 
I want you to see the, the progression that has taken place. The ark rises is a picture to the ark rising, the Lord rising as it was during Moses' time. Moses goes to Mount Sinai. And then what do we see? Here is Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Do you see the progression? Wilderness and the ark to Sinai, to Sinai, uh, to Zion. All that was in Sinai is now in Zion. The authority of that time finds its authority in the moment of David at that moment on Mount Zion. As God was present there in Mount Sinai, God is now present in His sanctuary with His people, is what David's saying. And here's the glorious truth for us today, is that Christ has passed into the holy places, and His presence is with His people right now. What was true of Sinai, what was true of the temple, is true of His temple that He's building right now. What a glorious truth. Because we think of the the physical manifestation of God and how they experienced God's presence and all of these miraculous things. But Jesus actually says what we have is better. It's incredible. So we should see all of those manifestations of God's presence as what we have now, but we don't ever lose it. It's always with Him, us, as Christ is always in His temple. Verse 18, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. And so the picture is of the free will offerings and the plunderings of the Egyptians. And, and, and what happened as the Egyptians were plundered? How did they build the tabernacle? Where did all of the material come from to build the tabernacle? Because they're escaping from Egypt. Well, the Egyptians gave them everything. The tabernacle was built with the plundering from the Egyptians. But what we should see is how this passage actually finds its fulfillment in the church. Because Paul quotes it in Ephesians In chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul changes the language of the psalm and says it's not men giving gifts to God, but it's actually God giving gifts to men. And now notice the language in the temple language. Paul goes on to say that Christ himself is gifting the church for the building of the church. What a reversal. In Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians and took that. They build the temple and give it to God. But what we see actually in the fulfillment of it is Christ himself ascends and pours out gifts to us to build us up, the church. What a remarkable gift that we have from Christ that He would build us up, that He would Himself build 
his church. In verses 19 through 27, you see blessings to God. In verse 19, you see God's continual and present preservation. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. That ought to be our daily recognition that it is God who gives us life. God gives us the air to breathe. God is the one who sustains our heartbeat at every moment. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. So all preservation is from God. Not only the moment-to-moment things, but even our very life in a long-term view. But we also see there's a future preservation in verses 21 through 23 that is promised. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. What graphic language that is. What is this crushing of the head of the enemies? But the promise of the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and all those that are of the seed of the serpent. An amazing promise is the destruction of the serpent. It's interesting that we see this as... David experiences rescue. He even draws upon what God will do in the future and for a final victory. God is put forth here as a, as a warrior, but his people are with him in the victory. You know, David conquered his enemies. David saw victory. But Christ will shatter all of his enemies. Christ will bring a final justice. Results in praise. Verse 24, going back to the idea of the procession of God entering into the tabernacle. Your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. And here you see, the people of God with God, marching with him in victory. The singers in front, the musicians last. Between them, the virgins playing tambourines. Bless God and the great congregation, the Lord, O you, who are Israel's fountain. There's Benjamin, the least of them in the lead, and the princes of Judah in their throng, and the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Get the picture here. Is Everyone is involved. All of the righteous that were told they will exalt in the Lord in verse 3. All of those that said they will be singing with joy, they are now part of this procession of victory, a victory march with God. And so the picture is God himself is marching and his people are there with him celebrating in the victory that God has brought about. So God's people accompany him in his victory. And this is the same thing that we are promised in Christ, is it not? Where Paul, in fact, says that the saints will judge the world with Christ. That we will stand in that victory with Christ. That he will take his people that he calls by name. And we will be able to march in the procession with him. So what 
what David describes as a celebratory thing, we will experience in its fullness as Christ comes. And he doesn't come to die again. He comes to slaughter. This comes with a prayer in verses 28 through 31, a petition. Summon your power, O God, the power, O God, by which you have worked for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herds of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Notice this prayer here is that God would destroy with this great power those who delight in war. Those that are not for peace, but for those who would rather see and attack the church. And so the psalmist prays for God's power to come. If this is a picture of Egypt It's amazing you see in this picture here, in verse 31, Nobles shall come from Egypt, Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. What's the picture there? Is these mighty nations now are are in submission to God. It shows that they've been conquered. It shows their true weakness. You've probably seen... Those video, those clips of of after World War II, um, the soldiers that have been defeated and how defeated they look. At one time, they were they struck fear into the Allied forces, but when they were conquered, they have a pathetic look about them. That bravery is gone, and now they're in bondage and coming before their new overlords, if you will. That's the picture of the enemies of God. Those that seemed weak or reduced to submission. And so the psalmist closed with directions for the, for the nations. In verse 32, O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. It's amazing that it's been extolling the strength of the Lord, but then it says at the end that the Lord gives strength to his people. God uses means. He uses his people. And our strength is not on our own, but our strength is in the Lord. You think of Ephesians chapter 6 of the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord in the might of his strength. You know, what we see here is the magnanimous, mighty working of God through supernatural and miraculous means in the Old Testament. And David draws upon that and says, that which God did then, he's doing now. And we should be comforted to know that the same Lord will use that same power to vanquish his enemies. And his enemies are our enemies. When we're on God's side, 
God does the battle for us. He fights the battle for us. We're called to be obedient. We're called to be steadfast. We're called to put on the armor of God. But we ought to be comforted that despite what we see, that's not the reality. And there's another point here that I think comes out from this psalm. What seems like an unstoppable world power at times that's overruling God's people at any moment will one day bring tribute and submission to the Lord. And his people will be with the Lord in that judgment over them. What this psalm teaches us about the enemy that we face is that the enemy is anything but a solid foundation. And actually the enemy cowers before the Lord. And so we see two things is the mighty strength and power of our God who is sovereign and ruling over all things. But then we're at the same time reminded in reality that our enemy is rather pathetic. And they will come in submission before the king of kings when he returns. Let that comfort us. Let that bring joy to our hearts to know that Christ has vanquished all enemies. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says that Christ has already subdued the enemy. That victory is ours because we are in Christ. Our greatest